This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Louise DeSalvo explains the art of slow writing. Then PW Nonfiction Reviews Editor Annie Carino brings in some exciting new books on technology. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. We have a new number one in fiction. Uh, It's the seventh Michael Bennett book by James Patterson, who's Mm. co-authored by uh, Michael Ledwidge. Uh, You know, Patterson doesn't really write solo books anymore. Right, Um, right. I'm always curious to know what what the collaborative process is. Does he write like a paragraph and then the other guy expands it out? I was going to ask the same thing. I didn't know how they do it. If, If it's maybe he has a writer who writes it and he fills out some of the missing stuff or... Who outlines it? How do they come up with the idea for it? Yeah, maybe someday we can get him on the show and ask him. Yeah, that's great. Uh, but in this one, uh, Detective Michael Bennett, as uh, the uh, star of this long-running series, finally returns to New York City and uh, deals with uh, yet another unsettling, horrific case. It's a James Patterson thriller. Right. Um, you know, lots of blood and grit mm-hmm. and uh, definitely right. appealing to people who are into that sort of thing. It sold 42,000 copies in its first week out. A little bit further down the list at number three uh, is another mystery, The Lost Key by Catherine Coulter and J.T. Ellison. Um, and this is another one where you know, one name is very big and the other name is very right, small. Right. Catherine Coulter and J.T. Ellison. <laughs> um, and uh, this is the suspenseful sequel to 2013's The Final Cut. Um, and uh, also takes place in New York, the, the, this time the star uh, who was once with Scotland Yard is now an FBI agent so uh you know we it's it's another book in the series um it it keeps things going keeps things moving uh and the pw review says the author's sophisticated third person narration smoothly propels the action to the exciting climax Mm, great that's at number three and i just wanted to uh to note a little bit further down the list at number 10 uh is the perfect witness by iris johansson um and this is something a little bit different it's a novel of paranormal suspense um, so it has a, a supernatural aspect to it, mm-hmm. and it has an unusual heroine, a 16-year-old girl, mm-hmm. who's the daughter of the uh, recently murdered head of the New Jersey Mafia. Oh, wow. So um, she has an ability to read people's memories, a skill that her father exploited, and now uh, lots of people want that from her. So she goes into hiding, but eventually her cover is blown and danger looms. Our review says that this page turner builds to a breathless conclusion. It sounds like an exciting, interesting twist on the usual thriller formula. Right. Oh, this is fantastic to see. I'm always interested to see what what falls a little bit below the top three or four on fiction because mm-hmm. often they're you know they're very familiar names. So it's nice to see that. Yeah. So it's a nonfiction. Well, um, 
pretty active in nonfiction. Two books I want to start with. Number two on the list, debuting Gina Homolka. This is the Skinny Taste Cookbook, Light on Calories, Big on Flavor. Uh, this is a, uh, a book that was uh, we, we covered uh, in, in an issue, a blog to book. I mean, this is one of the uh, popular ones that we've had, and we've had a couple of bestsellers on here already that we've talked about. And Joy Bean, uh, for Cooking the Books, wrote this article. Uh, it was titled, Giving Hungry Fans What They Want for Big Web to Cookbook Releases This Fall, and this is one of them. So uh, it's kind of interesting. This is someone who's already had a big uh, following uh, on her website. Um, Clarkson Potter uh, acquired the book and turned it something great and beautiful, as they always do. And um, so we say Gina Homolka is America's most trusted home cook when it comes to easy, flavorful recipes uh, that are uh, miraculously low calories. So that's basically from the uh, from the jacket copy. But but going along with there, just wanted to go down the list just a little bit at another cookbook. One, this is at number 42. Now, this is by uh, Thomas McNaughton. Uh, and this is a uh, flour plus water pasta. This is the uh, he's he's from the flour plus water corner restaurant, San Francisco's Mission District, uh, and he talks all about dough and pasta and how to make it. And he's got 50 recipes that'll challenge and delight readers. Uh, we gave it a star. We said the author's passion for pasta shines through and thoughtful instructions along how to uh, how to photographs will inspire, inspire even amateur cooks to get flour on their hands. Just like to just like just to see what else is on there. And, and since he's not uh, doesn't have a big blog, but um, he does have a restaurant. And this is just something that's this kind of stand out. But the big news is the uh, number three, which is actually just below uh, Skinny Taste, is Lena Dunham's book, mm. Not That Kind of Girl. Now, the subtitle is A Young Woman Tells You What She's Learned, quote unquote. And in our review by uh, Rachel Deal, our very own, um, we gave it a star. And uh, she talks about... Uh, being inspired by Helen Gurley Brown's Having It All, which she stumbled upon in a college uh, thrift store. And she hopes to impart the same kind of wisdom, even though she quoted, she said that her wisdom, reading it now is somewhat bananas, but still very helpful, <laughs> uh, but to, to young women her age. And and there's been a lot of scuttlebutt going on uh, with Lena Dunham. You either love her or you hate her. And uh, Rachel dresses that in the, in the review. She closes by say, saying, no, not only does this provide her wonderful material, uh, meaning a lot of her, her stories, her own personal, very personal stories, uh, which is pretty great. So not only does she provide uh, this, not only does this provide her wonderful material, but it's an invigorating, refreshing slap in the face to a world that is so unwelcoming to all the musing, sweet, smart Mouseburgers out there. Now, Mouseburgers is what she uh, was quoting Helen Gurley Brown, calling a lot of women who, uh, who might be meek and... Uh, mm -hmm. And this is kind of a, a manifesto saying that, you know, the meat can take over the world. So um, <laughs> what's what interesting is she made, she, she, I think she, I think the advance was $3.7 million for the book. Uh, this last week has sold about 38,000 copies, which um, we'll see how it does over the next course of the weeks. But I think people might have been expecting it to hit number one. You know, I'm not taking anything away from that. We right. do have uh, a couple of big books on, on the list. So that's basically what we have on the nonfiction list. All right. 
Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on the Dunham book and see how it moves, um, whether it goes up or down. And you know, something like that can always get a big boost right. from a media appearance. You know, if, if three weeks from now she's on Oprah or six months from now she's on Oprah, suddenly right. we'll see her book everywhere. So exactly. uh, that'll be uh, something to keep an eye out for. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Louise DeSalvo tells us about the slow writing revolution. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman and America's First Bohemians, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Louise DeSalvo on the line. Her new book is The Art of Slow Writing. Hi, Louise. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you, Rose. I'm happy to be with you. So the title of your book brings to mind the notion of slow food, which is about local and organic farming and uh, the, the antidote to fast food. So is this the antidote to fast writing? I think it's the antidote to the expectation of writers that they can get their work done more quickly than it's possible to do their work. Um, But yes, in that sense, it is the antidote to fast writing. The expectations these days of writers to produce one, two books a year, um, there are a lot of writers who are saying that publishers' expectations these days are just unrealistic and that they feel as if they're being rushed through their books. So I think it's the antidote to the hurriedness of our culture, the quickness, the fastness, the expectation that things be done overnight. So um, you you have an interesting concept uh, specifically of time when it comes to writing. Tell us a bit about that. I, I think essentially a book takes as long as it's going to take. And I'm not suggesting that we string it out or we obsess or we work longer and harder than we need to. But uh, books have rhythms. You know, we we begin in a very complicated way. We don't know where we're going. It takes us a certain amount of time to find out even what our subjects about, are about, even though we thought that we knew when we began. And then there's the whole business of, 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 of deepening a, a draft that we have, of of suddenly realizing, my goodness, you know, I need I need to... I need to look more thoroughly at that person I wrote about. They're not as demonic than I, that I thought that they were. So, so the point is that we as writers can learn a lot, not only about the work that we're doing, but about ourselves. If we allow ourselves to engage with our work in a slow, meaningful, contemplative kind of way. Now, and and for for those of us who write books and who have contracts uh, or, or write pieces or uh, for magazines or what have you, how do you how do you uh, kind of think about the money aspect of it? What if you're writing, you know, you're writing a book, you need to make that next installment, you need to get paid, or your publisher's just saying, hey, we got to get we got to get this going, or we we can't we can't pay the next part of your advance. You know, I I am about deadlines. I don't believe that, um, you know, we should do away with deadlines and and write our books endlessly, on the one hand. On the other hand, I I, I think that we need to resist people expecting us to do things in unrealistic time frames. And, and, And that's one of the issues here. One of the things that I've noticed is that Publishers are not intractable. I mean, maybe if you're a best-selling writer and they need another book for you, buy, buy you in a short time frame, that's another issue. But most of us, if we understand 
what our process is. And if we also understand what we're in the writing game for, um, then I think that it's realistic to have conversations with people on the other end about how long our books are going to take. And how about for amateurs? I mean, next month is National Novel Writing Month, as you might know, mm-hmm. NaNoWriMo. Um, and that's uh, when people use time pressure to overcome their own delays. So it's kind of the, the opposite of this. But is there um, some way that uh, NaNoWriMo writers could uh, get some use out of your book, even if the, the slow writing and the, the complete a book in a month notion seem kind of incompatible? Well, I, I, you know, I, th- I think that if we approach the work that we're doing in a meditative kind of way, and we can do that for a course of a month, that's a wonderful thing. There are writers who have written quickly. D.H. Lawrence did at times, although he slowed down at other times and, and revised uh, Sons and Lovers, for example, several times, even though he, he wrote his drafts quickly. On, on the other hand, I, I wonder what that expectation does to a writer uh, if it, in fact, forces them to do work that they wouldn't ordinarily have done or if it forces them into a you know, high blood pressure situation where just from the mere stress of trying to accomplish something that's well nigh impossible, if not extraordinarily difficult to to, to accomplish it. I mean, I think I'm really about the long-lived health of the writer. Hmm. Um, if you're going to be able to do this at 90, you know, at 50, at 40, if you start at 20, if you don't wear yourself out, there are lots of recipes out there for burnout. Um, look at uh, look at writers who like Hemingway, who've who've gone about their work in very unwholesome and unhealthy circumstances. So I really do worry about that trend in our culture um, to set expectations so unrealistically high that people who don't meet them might, in fact, be harmed by trying to do something like that. I mean, that's the last thing in the world I would want to do would be to churn out a book in, 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 in a month. I mean, after a month of my own work, I hardly even know where I am. Hmm. I've just begun. I think it's much more realistic to look at how real writers write, how real writers have written their books. The, those writers who have taken, for example, 10 years to, to pen a work, uh, Donna Tart, for example, than to set unrealistic expectations for ourselves as beginning writers. So let's talk about beginning writers. Where does a writer begin? A writer begins in the middle. You know, <laughs> you know we, all, we all know that, those of us who have written, we, we certainly don't begin at the beginning. We begin by playing, by doodling, by writing chunks, by writing what commands our attention, even though we don't know where that particular piece is going to wind up, or even if it's going to be anywhere in, in our books. Um, what we need to do is play uh, and overcome the resistance to put whatever comes into our consciousness at the beginning of the process down on paper. So a lot of the beginning of the process has to do with overcoming our own inhibitions to work incompletely one of, the, one of the things that I like to do with my student writers is to show them early drafts of Virginia Woolf's novels, to show them how tentative, incomplete they are, uh, 
because students tend to try to be perfect from the beginning, and that's the death knell for a complex piece of work. And so do you discuss in the book, I mean, the writing process in general, but for both fiction and nonfiction? Yeah, I mean, I've I've done a lot of research into the composing process. Uh, Janet Emig um, started us having these conversations a long time ago about how students actually compose when they go about it. I'm I'm interested in how beginning writers begin composing. I'm more interested in how seasoned writers who've published, you know, many books or who are, who are Pulitzer Prize winners, what they say about how they, how they go about their work. Because I've always believed that if we can that we have to look at the greats and then emulate their process if we want to be writers like they are. Um, you don't learn how to be, for example, a karate expert from taking instructions from someone who doesn't know what they're doing. So you have to really look at the people who are really doing it well to understand how we can begin to do it. And so, so you talk about a game plan uh, in, in your book. And mm-hmm. what, what would you say game plan is for a beginner versus a more seasoned writer, as you were just talking about? I, I, I think of it like this. Henry Miller, before he wrote any one of his works, sat down one night when he was working in New York City and wrote a gigantic plan for what was to become his life's work. He had not at that moment thought of what he wanted to do. But in one gigantic outpouring over a many-hour period, he planned all the books that became um, Cancer, Capricorn, The Rosy Crucifixion. He had this gigantic game plan for life's work. I think beginning writers need to think that big. I encourage my beginning, I encourage my beginning writers when they begin work to work small, but I encourage them to reach for the stars and to think big. And, you know, there are all of those studies out there that suggest uh, the, the Harvard, the famous study of uh, people from Harvard, uh, that if we write down what our goals are, we're more likely to achieve them. So I like, I like people to think big in terms of their, their game plans for their work. What do they want to do over their lifetime, over the next 20 years, 15, and so forth? Wow, that's great. So, so meaning mapping out a uh, progression of books in ways, or, or is it just like an idea of books that you would want to write? Anything. I mean, I think it has to be authentically the writer's own. So I don't like to be proscriptive, but I do like to share the kind of information that this is what Henry Miller did. Um, that Virginia Woolf, for example, it's, if you look at Virginia Woolf's uh, journals, it seems that at the beginning of every year, she thought very carefully about what the next year would hold for her or the next several years. And in fact, when you look back, you see her accomplishing those goals. I've been rereading my own journals. They go back into the 70s. So I have an enormous amount of journals. And every once in a while, I need to dip into them because somebody asked me a question about how I wrote one of my books. And the stunning thing is that I have conceptualized a book very often, 15 years before I actually have written it. But I've written down those game plans, as it were. Someday I want to write a book, for example, about... Someday I want to write a book about about um, writing as a way of healing. I wrote that, and I wrote a complete plan for that book 15 years before I got to writing it. 
So it's dream, dream big, dream on the page, dream in a process journal. Um, that's, what, that's what seasoned writers have taught me. So the flip side of dreaming is, is doubt. It often creeps in. Um, how do you think writers can manage that? Maybe if they write up this big game plan and then they look at it and think, I'm never going to be able to do all that. I think it's absolutely essential for beginning writers to understand that virtually every writer I've ever talked to and every writer I've ever read talks about how terrified they are to approach the page. That never goes away. So a lot of beginning writers think that if they work on their psyches and they, they get themselves you know, some courage, that maybe they'll begin to do the work. But in fact, the opposite is true. You, you kind of gather courage as you go on. Not that, for me, that, and I, I've got to call it terror. It's the only word for it. Not, uh, that terror no, never goes away. That's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I like I like to kind of like um, dumb down what it is we do. I, I say to my students, look, you know, you're not doing brain surgery. You're really not. I mean, you go mm -hmm. into a brain and you cut the wrong thing. You're, you're, you're screwing up a life. You, you, you write, you know, a hundred pages of stuff that's incomprehensible. You get an opportunity to go back and do it again. You don't get an opportunity to go back and do it again with brain <laughs> surgery. So you know. So let's like not get too wrapped up about how hard this thing is. Yes, it's it's complicated and difficult, but we are in a privileged position of being able to rip up what we do and not use it. So uh, you mentioned the book that uh, for you, writing and cooking seems to go hand in hand. What yeah. what is it about cooking? Talk to us about food. Oh, my God. Endless and forever. <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of a writing day where I'm so much in my head and so cerebral, um, I, I need to see, you know, onions and garlic cloves and cut into a nice, beautiful piece of, you know, melon to make a melon salad, maybe. There's, I think for me, because the rewards of writing such as they are, come after such a long time. You don't, I don't produce a book for two, three years, maybe four, sometimes more. A, a, a memoir that I just finished took 10 years to write. Mm -hmm. Man, that's a heck of a lot of deferred gratification. And then there are all the complexities of publishing in this time. There's nothing nicer than starting a meal at 6 o'clock and mm -hmm. having something wonderful to eat at 7. So it's the perfect antidote to the deferred gratification of writing. And that's why I cook, um, because I need some gratification in this writing life. I, I have to ask, since you mentioned it, how long did it take you to write The Art of Slow Writing? That was, that was a, a wonderful process. Um, I started writing The Art of Slow Writing in, in the midst of a really difficult writing time. Um, I'd written a, a memoir that I couldn't sell. Um, I had a rough patch with the people in my publishing life. Um, I frankly thought I was washed up and had nothing more I could do. So one day my husband said, why don't you write a blog? And I said, sure. And what would I write a blog about? Well, what I know, I, I know a lot about the teaching of writing and, and the writing process. So I started this blog. And it became a place for me to write about what I was encountering in my classrooms. So I think a year goes by, um, maybe more. I get a cancer diagnosis. 
I need to stop the work that I'm doing. Um, I recover. And so my brains are addled, as every cancer survivor's brains are. But I want to I get back to the desk. I want to write a book. Um, so I become convinced that I could turn the, this blog into a, into a book. I had, at the time, an incredibly brilliant research assistant who really got me through that tough time, a woman by the name of uh, Amy Jo Burns. She just published her first memoir called Cinderland. Um, she said, look, you know, let me just take all the blog posts and put them in a rough kind of order, and then I know you're going to rewrite, but maybe you can start from there. So that's what she did. And then I completely revised the entire thing, every single word of it, over time. Um, but that was that process. I had help. I had good input from my agent, uh, Joanne Wyckoff, who focused me on what uh, that was about. But, but completing uh, The Art of Slow Writing was part of my recovery. And as I, 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 I forced myself to get to the desk every day, even though it was difficult, um, as my brains got better, it was easier to revise. So, I mean, I, I think it's also important for writers to know that lots of us have gone to the desk with our brains less than perfect. And man, if I could, you know, rework a book in chemo fog, people whose brains are completely there um, can expect themselves to do a hell of a lot better than I was able to do. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Louise DeSalvo, the author of The Art of Slow Writing, uh, who's just talking about some really intense stuff about health and process and um, finding ways to write that don't wreck your health and finding ways to write when your health is already wrecked. That's so right. uh, so I, I really understand now why you're coming at this from the perspective of, of longevity of the long-term plan. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So how would you suggest that an author go about structuring work? And, uh, and what about proposals? Let me, let me talk about structure for a minute. Um, one of the things that I've learned is that structure can be very, very fluid until quite the end stage of the process, that, that you need a lot of stuff before you understand how you're going to put it together. And also, you need a lot of stuff before you can even understand maybe what the voice is going to be. And in all the years that I've worked with writers and in witnessing my own process, one of the things that I've learned is that if you have enough stuff there, you can wait until a moment when you, and this is the patience part of it that's hard, when you, when you see the way the book is supposed to be, and I need to use that word see, it suddenly it doesn't happen for me at the beginning. And then revising the book, finding the voice, happens. 
toward the end. I've, I've never known what the structures of my books are going to be until very near the end of the process. And then, of course, there's a you know, gigantic revision and rewriting at that point. But I think that you have to have a heck of a lot of uh, material to begin to understand how you want to put the book together and how you want it to sound. Um, in terms of proposals, um, do you mean how does a beginning writer go about finding an agent uh, with, a, with a, a work they want to write, or w what, can you rephrase that question? Sure. I, I, think, I think we were thinking either a beginning writer or, or someone like yourself who mm -hmm. had approached this book, I mean, who's, who's written quite a bit, but then every time you, uh, you, you embark on a new book, it's a whole new way of, of putting your ideas together with the hopes of selling a book. And I know with fiction, it's one thing you have to write the entire book, but with nonfiction, right. you, you can, you can get way with a, you can get by with, with a proposal. H how do you think about putting together a proposal for a book, whether you're a beginning writer or let's say you're in mid career? Um, I, from what I've gathered recently, a lot of memoirs need to be completely finished before anybody will look at them. But but I, I'll I'll talk about proposals and how I've I've managed proposals. Um, I had a complete draft of the order flow writing before I went back and wrote a proposal. That was how my agent insisted that I I do it. Um, that I write the proposal after the book was written. So I struggled mightily to figure out what that book was about, and then there was the proposal. Um, that's wow. how my current agent likes to work. I've also sold books on the basis of um, a long letter. I've sold books on the basis of a proposal that was 120 pages long. So yes. I think it, it really very much depends. But, but I will say this. For me, there is nothing as sublime as putting your own mark on a book before you start dealing with the marketplace. I mean, that may be very unrealistic for some people, but I've seen so many people go out into the marketplace before they even know what their book is about. Mm -hmm. And I've never been able to write a proposal without really understanding what a book of mine is going to be about. And that means, I, when I was in graduate school, I had a professor who said, look, you've got to take a piece of the book and do it, and do it big and do it right. And so... I've always taken a big chunk of whatever book I've wanted to write, and I've done it just to see, first of all, just to see what it was about, and then to write a proposal from it. Because otherwise, you know, you, you, you have no idea how you're going to feel about doing something until you actually start doing it. I abandoned, um, I'd say, about a good four books in my writing life because I took a piece of what I thought I was going to be excited about, and I thought, after trying to write a big chunk of it, no way. So, so I, think, I, I think that having a, an intimate connection with our work before we go into the marketplace is really advisable. Um, and, and, and that can let us know what our work is really authentically about. You, uh, your mention of the professor who influenced you made me think of your students. Uh, you're teaching writing at Hunter's MFA program, and there's actually a memoir program there, uh, which is pretty unusual. Most of these MFA programs really focus on fiction. How did that happen? How did that program come into existence? 
Well, first, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching undergraduates now. I'm not teaching in the MFA oh, okay. program at the moment, but I, I began that program. That started when uh, Peter Carey, who teaches in the novel, who's the head of the MFA program, teaches in the novel, a part of it. Um, I'd wanted to start a memoir program at, at Hunter for many years. When Peter Carey came on as the head of the MFA, we had a wonderful lunch, and he said, do it, and and I did. And at some point... Catherine Harrison came on board, and the two of us were pretty much a two-person show for uh, the several years that I worked in the MFA program. Um, it was absolutely splendid. I mean, it, it, it was, we got fabulous writers who had fabulous stories to tell. It was a very sweet part of my, of my teaching life. Um, I stopped teaching in the MFA because of my health issues. You know, I, mm -hmm. I really... There was a lot of administrative work. It was very, as, as any of you who've worked with graduate students, it's very, very intense. You have different expectations from graduate students. They really want to write books. And, and that's hard, you know, to get a book off the ground in two years. So I'm now teaching undergraduates. I, I have a, my personality is also especially good with very beginning writers. I love to I love to work with writers who are just beginning to think about writing memoir rather than writers who, who are so seasoned that they really don't need me all that much. So I'm now deliciously teaching undergraduates, miss graduate students enormously, but you know, it's one of those decisions that I've had to make because of my own particular journey. And how does teaching inform your own writing? Oh my God. It is so, <laughs> so essential. Um, First of all, uh, I become, without teaching, I am not my complete self. Um, I become a little bit of a nut job, you know. Uh, I get a little too introspective. I, I worry the page a little too much. Uh, it's very important for me to hear other people's voices. And it's extremely important for me to discuss in a classroom situation what each of my students is going through as they try to write their first long memoir piece. Um, it, it keeps me honest about my own process. It reminds me of what the struggle is and how we all share it. Um, I mean, I'm 72 now. I can't imagine not teaching. I, you know, I keep saying they're going to have to prop me up you know, because even if I can't stand up because this is something I will not give up. Um, I, I adore teaching. I really love being in the classroom. And I've been very privileged to have absolutely fabulous students. Um, very often formerly working class or working class students like myself, so very often first people in their families to go to college like myself. At Hunter, I'm very committed to that kind of student, and I, I just adore them. They have real stories and that need telling. And um, you've also written another book on the writing craft, but that one was on healing, which you mentioned. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, it struck me, you know, I, I'm pretty much a biographer. I wrote biography. I wrote about Virginia Woolf. I wrote about other writers. But I'm pretty much a biography junkie. But I particularly like biographies or works written about writers. Um, I'm obsessed. I guess my life's journey has been to figure out how, how, works of art become works of art. It's that process that I'm, I'm fascinated uh, by. As I was reading all of these 
memoirs or letters or diaries or journals of published writers, one thing kept striking me. I kept reading over and over again, writing saved my life, writing helped help me heal. I never would have gotten over that tragedy unless I'd, I'd written. And that was from writers from ages ago. So I, I began to think, well, there, there's something here. And then I read the work of James W. Pennebacher, um, opening up, who, who has done real science, real scientific experiments with people who have written for 20 minutes a day over a period of three days, and he studied their blood chemistry, etc. I mean, he's, he's one of my idols. And, and concluded that writing in a certain kind of way, if we write about events, feelings, and then do reflection, that is just not ruminate, just not write about what we did, and just not leave it there, but that, that three-part dance events, feelings, and reflection, that he found changes at the level of, of markers in the blood that showed that people were more able to fight infection. I was blown away and captivated. So I felt that um, Pennebacher comes at it from his discipline. The piece that I could add was what I had learned about what writers were saying because of my own particular interest in what writers say about their work. So I put those two pieces of the puzzle together, Pennebacher's work plus what I knew about writers, and I, I wrote um, that book called Writing is a Way of Healing, and um, it's, it's a book I'm really proud of. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to do that. So... Do you have, if you had one piece of advice for writers, either beginning or experience, what, what would that be? Don't wait for inspiration. Sit down at the desk in a fairly routine kind of way, whatever that routine can be for you, realistic as it may be, if it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But encounter your work every day. You know, take the weekend off if you want to. But get, do it meditatively as one sits down to meditate every day at the same time. So one sits down to the discipline of writing every day at the same time to the extent that one can. That, that's my advice, pure and simple. Great. So uh, with repetition, uh, you get involved a little bit more <laughs> in your work. Yeah, and you don't wait for you wait. I, so many writers I know waste so much time thinking about, well, am I going to write this afternoon, tomorrow morning, what about next week? You know, that's all energy wasted. If, if, if I know I'm, I'm going to sit at my desk at 10 o'clock whenever I can, to the extent that I can, um, commit to that. And all of that, you know, rumination goes away and the energy is there for the writing. Wow, that sounds like wonderful advice. Thank you. But we've been talking with Louise DeSalvo. You can find her book, The Art of Slow Writing, in stores right now. Louise, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me on your program. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Rose, and thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Annie Carreno talks about technology books for fall, so stay tuned. I'm Diane Ackerman, the author of Human Age, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Annie Carino is here to tell us all about this fall's big technology books. Hello, Annie. Hello. Hi. So it's always great to have you here. And uh, you cover a whole bunch of different types of nonfiction. Uh, and we, we had a lot of possibilities for today. But you said you wanted to talk about technology books. So here we are. Yep. Uh, I thought... This week would be good for tech books because we've got one big one that came out earlier this week on Tuesday, which was Walter Isaacson's uh, The Innovators. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which has already, there's been a lot of hype around this book already. It's been nominated for the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. And we know Walter Isaacson is known for his biographies. And this is an untraditional uh, biography of the internet or... uh, a history of the digital revolution. Right. And he's written on uh, uh, Albert Einstein before. That was one of his bigger books before. Mm. And this one, he seems to be taking a broad scope view of innovation seemingly from its uh, beginning. Yep. So it covers the last 200 years by uh, examining episodic advancements in technology and the people who made them. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of the book is the claim that creativity uh, is a collaborative process. So in other words, innovation is a, a team sport, as we say in our review. But um, So in that way, th- that makes this book almost an antidote to his Steve Jobs biography, in which he portrays Jobs as more of a, a visionary and mm-hmm. the, the man behind the Apple brand. Right. So I find that alone pretty interesting. And we did a profile with him on him this week in the magazine. And he talks about how he used crowdsourcing to write this book. So he put a couple chapters up on websites and had people contribute or give feedback. And I thought that was really an interesting process to to take to writing because it's kind of what he was writing about, Mm -hmm. collaboration. So when you say it goes back 200 years, that's going back to telegraphs and telephones, really the original communication networks. Uh, I mean, does does he get into the the less technical stuff? Do do we have the the horseback riders carrying the mail, or is it really about machine-assisted communication? I I think it's more machine-assisted communication. You've got, like, the first... I'm forgetting what it's called, but the... Punch cards. Part. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then Ada Lovelace is a figure that plays a big part in it. And she's uh, Lord Byron's daughter. And she's credited with the first real algorithm mm-hmm. for coming up with that. So and, that's pretty cool. Um, the topic of women in technology is a very big one right now, especially because the, the Grace Hopper conference just happened uh, this week. And uh, I was wondering if he addresses that at all when he's talking about collaboration. He does a lot, and that's why the book has been lauded for that reason. He pays a lot of attention to uh, the women engineers involved throughout the years, including um, several pioneers who are working, female pioneers during the uh, World War II, mm-hmm. who contributed a lot. So he definitely pays attention and is conscious of that aspect of technology and brings to light uh, new figures. So um, who is this aimed at? Is is this meant to be a book for people who are already in the technical field? 
you know, it's not too technical in terms of uh, he doesn't get really into the specifics of the, it's more of uh, a history in that way, in that he's kind of um, tracking the players involved rather than the, the specifics of what what's actually happening. So, uh, but that said, I think a lot of tech people will be interested in, you know, the, the techniques that went into these lesser known technologies or mm -hmm. the like f first iterations of what we're using today. But I do think a general audience will find it interesting. You know, the, the internet is such a part of our lives every day that he, the history of the internet by this guy who's a well-known writer and mm -hmm. who wrote the book on Steve Jobs, I think people will definitely find it relevant. So what were your favorite parts of the author profile? I love those because they, they always get a little bit more personal. You really get a sense of what, what it's like to sit down and have coffee with someone. Yeah, uh, he talks at one point about um, developing this technology where uh, the book would be a living thing and it would be written online and there would be a way for us to work uh, like a technology for payment uh, to divide payment among the collaborators so this idea that that you could constantly be writing a narrative of a story because if you think about it i mean the the topic is so modern the history of the internet i mean it's changing every day so it's probably a little outdated by the time it hits the shelves so, sure um the idea that you could constantly be um writing or a book could constantly be changing mm -hmm which is interesting. Yeah, right, right. He seemed really excited and enthusiastic about his subject, and that comes across both in the book and the profile. Oh, that's great, sure. And um, speaking of Ada Lovelace and her algorithms, you had another book that you wanted to mention to us, which is about algorithms. Oh, right. The formula, and this one is a book that kind of is under the radar, but we when we got the review back, I started reading it, and I think it, it's really good. It's a... Uh, called The Formula, How Algorithms Solve All Our Problems and Create More by Luke Dormel. comes out in November. Um, and the author writes for Fast Company, and he's also the author of the book, The Apple Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I liked about it is it's a great starting point for anyone trying to understand what the big fuss is about with big data. You know, we hear that term thrown around so much. Uh, and this is a great way to understand like why it's important mm -hmm. and it looks specifically at algorithms which um which are the processes that sh that sort through and filter data I, I like thinking of algorithms as being like recipes they say you know first you do this and then you do that and if you have this then you use it and if you don't then you do this other thing and it makes it it makes you able to produce something so it makes right. the the data it, it turns the data into information that businesses or people or anyone can use who, who need it. Um, but he's talking about the bigger picture and how algorithms are becoming part of multiple aspects of our lives, mm -hmm. One, not even just online, but right. various places. And what I think is particularly strong about this book, and he gives us example, various examples, which I think would, which makes it, also potentially interesting for techies, I guess, yeah. mm -hmm. or tech enthusiasts. Um, but what I liked about this book, and I think it's really, imp you don't see a lot of books that take this viewpoint, is 
he's addressing the topic in a way that thinks of technology as neither good no, nor bad, but neutral, but n- not neutral. Mm. So, and I think that's really important because you see a lot of books that are either, you know, this is the problem with technology or that are by like people who are CEOs of the big startups or whatever. And, and saying this is what's wonderful about it. Exactly. Yeah. And then like people with the privacy issues, you know, and he addresses those fairly. But this is, it's the idea that it's neither good nor bad, but it's sort of both, too. And it's always going to be both and it can't be neutral. So I think that's a really interesting point that we haven't seen in a lot of these tech books lately. Yeah. Interesting. Great. So what else do you have? The next one I have is called Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, The Many Faces of Anonymous by Gabriella Coleman. And this book is about the internet collective known as Anonymous. And for anyone who doesn't know, Anonymous is a worldwide group of pranksters, activists, or hacktivists. And I think most people associate them with WikiLeaks, but they're much more widespread in their digital activism. But they target corporations, governments, and even institutions such as Scientology. They did mm-hmm. a big a, attack, quote-unquote attack on that. And they use, they use the Internet as their tool. Mm-hmm. And what I like about this book is that the author takes an anthropological approach to her subject. So for six years, she embedded herself within this community mm. or a virtual community. Uh, she not, so she not, not only gets a feel for the, the structure and like chain of commands in, you know, such a f- fuzzily def- defined group, you know, cause it's not, I mean, by nature it's anonymous. So, right. I mean, if I wanted to say I was part of anonymous, all right, hooray. Now I'm part of anonymous. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you just kind of have to show up. Mm. Yeah. And, um, but there are like power structures and feuding sure. f- factions and like, and she really dives into sort of the politics there and then the ethical implications of some of what they're doing. And uh, so that's really interesting. But she also really gets a feel for the subculture of this group, which is very distinct. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, they have their own lingo uh, and then they have, you know, these these chat rooms that they go in, which she uh, she includes chat logs in the book. She includes... Um, she interviewed many people, and she even partook in like some of the actual planning. Or right. co- she copy edited manuscripts for them, that sort of thing. So wow. she really got, uh, and they trusted her, which is important for this mm-hmm. sort of group because they're, you know, they're doing illegal things. So, um, so the book is not o- only thorough, but it's entertaining because. These are the real internet rebel rousers or rabble rousers, and um, Coleman really takes us into the dark and wild corners of the internet in this book. Great, good. Well, and and so I mean, do you see? I, I mean, have you been seeing more and more books on technology recently? Yeah, a yeah. lot, and they're they're ranging. Some of them are histories. Some of them are how tos. You know, self help. Some of them are manifestos right so there's a lot to a lot and they're becoming easier and easier to review now because people are becoming more and more familiar right with what what's at stake the concepts yeah 
Yeah. Now, was the Walter Isaacson book, uh, when, when did we review that one? We reviewed that one in August, actually. Right, okay, great, yeah. And uh, how did we like it? Oh, we liked it. We, <laughs> we gave it a star right. review. Right. Um, all of these have received positive reviews, so I wouldn't recommend anything that was... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the last one, though, if we have time... We do. We do, yeah. Uh, it is More Awesome Than Money by Jim Dwyer. And the reason I brought this one, this was a last-minute pick. But are you guys familiar with Elo? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to explain what that is? Or? Sure. Um, it's, a, a, it's a social network that was conceived as uh, an alternative to both Twitter and Facebook. The idea was that um, Twitter is becoming more Facebook-like and Facebook is becoming more intolerable. Facebook really filters what you see. Uh, Twitter is starting to do the same thing and to try and, and direct your attention in certain directions. And so uh, this was very obvious during all the activism following the shooting of Mike Brown in St. Louis when Twitter was all about it. People were talking about it nonstop. But if you went on Facebook, all you saw were pictures of people's cats and birthday announcements mm-hmm. because Facebook mm-hmm thought that stuff kind of wasn't important and they filtered it to the bottom. Uh, so uh, the idea of Elo is that uh, it's longer form than Twitter, but it otherwise has a similar interface. It's just one big scroll. There's a little bit of filtering, um, not a lot, but it's still very new. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's still really in the, the beginning stages and um, they have an interesting manifesto, but they also take uh, venture capital funding. So uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether that means they're just going to end up going down the satisfy the investors route in the end. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was hoping you would talk about, because this is this book is re- loosely related to or it's about a project similar to. Uh, the building of Elo. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the story of these four college kids who are trying to build a alternative to Facebook called mm. uh, Dysphoria. Uh, and what the, it had that manifesto aspect to it. It uh, took arms against the, the, the business practices of Facebook. And it wanted, its main goal was to provide users control over their own personal data. And in the book, right. you, get, you get a sense of why this is important. Mm-hmm. Um, the story, there's a lot of drama in it. And so it, it's kind of reminiscent of Ben Mesrick's uh, The Accidental Billionaires, which was about the making of Facebook. Right. It's high drama. But I felt it was especially relevant now because. You know, you you get a real behind the scenes of what it, what it, how complicated it is to build, not just build build a successful uh, social media platform that aims to do uh, better things. Than, right. Um, and so the book gives you. Um, so in the book, you, you see them trying to these four guys, all college age, so young, inexperienced all trying to juggle the expectations of thousands of free internet advocates and savvy uh, venture capitalists, mm-hmm. all within, you know, the San Francisco, Silicon Valley, like, pressure cooker. Right. right. Very intense. Uh, you know, and, and then, not to give away the ending, but it it kind of collapses, but it's still in the works. And I, at, at first, when I heard about Elo, I thought maybe that was that was this but it turns out there 
they're different. Yeah, I think I think there are probably a lot of similar stories out there. But it's interesting, as you said, to get this this look at the the back end, as it were, um, when people are talking a lot right now about this supposed Facebook killer. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see whether it goes anywhere. And yeah. it's it's great to see that people are becoming more aware of you know the implications of using facebook or or mm-hmm. you know how the data that's at, at is at work on these sites and what we're gaining from it and what's being taken away so i think that's very uh, that's a good sign and it's a good sign for books to come too yeah sure absolutely we'll probably be talking about the yellow book this time in six months <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly All right. Well, Annie, thank you so much. It's always great to have you here and you bring us such interesting stuff. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad you came. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. And also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 